0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed.
1: rahim <laughs> in the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful, assalamu alaikum May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Friday, the 17th of November, 2023. The time is 4 or 3 p.m. And you're listening to Daniel Zia and Imam Saad Ahmed live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. We have uh, two topics for you, as is the norm in this show. So, in the first hour, we'll be talking about child poverty, and in the second hour, we'll be talking about the Voice of Voices for Peace campaign initiated, launched by the the Muslim community here in the UK in response to the current crisis um, going on in the Middle East. Uh, so, let's uh, start with the first. Um, um, topic that we have, which is about child poverty. So, in the UK, an estimated 14.5 million people are living in poverty. That represents about 22% of the entire population. Of these, 4.3 million are children, according to Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Um, their report in 2022, for the last 25 years, children have been the demographically most affected. By poverty, um, a twenty-two, um, two thousand and twenty-two report by the Resolution Foundation also suggests that the poorest quarter of households are set to see their incomes fall by six percent. This means that a further one point five million people will fall into absolute poverty, including five hundred thousand. That's half a million children, marking a significant decline in wealth for a proportion of the UK compared to 10 years ago. Furthermore, child poverty disproportionately affects black and minority ethnic children, with 46% now in poverty compared to 26% of white British children. Moreover, single parents and single pensioners are also demographics that are significantly affected. In June 2022, over 1.9 million children are eligible for free school meals, an increase of 9% from 2021 data. Only 26.6% of children eligible for free school meals receive five good GCSEs, including English and Maths, compared with 54% for non-free school meal pupils giving them significantly poorer life chances chances into adulthood. Child poverty is estimated to cost the economy 13 billion pounds annually, and the cost, the public sector, um, another 12 billion annually as well. So in this discussion, we will be talking about um, how do we tackle this crisis? What is the best way forward? Is the government doing enough? Is the private sector? Is the is the is the uh, civil society doing enough um, or not? Um, just to quote um, a couple of other very important stats. Um, so in terms of child poverty, so what does it look like here in the UK? So thirty percent of children living in the UK live under the poverty line. This, according to Save the Children, and thirty three percent of them. Who live under under poverty fall behind um, their peers in terms of education, something um, that I just spoke about a minute ago as well. And twenty three percent of children living in poverty in England miss expected levels of language development as well, as early as the age of five
2: hence we're asking this question today on our instagram page what should the government be doing to tackle child poverty so you can type away your answers it could be increased child benefits free school meals locally managed funds for families in crisis no caps on benefits you can type it or you can type your answers at voice of islam uk on instagram you can also call us in on 0208-687-7878 and let us know your answer what should uh, the government do to tackle the child poverty situation happening where we all live
1: correct so um Imam said, so you know there there is this traditional approach, and and then obviously we will talk about um, uh, the Islamic solution to that approach. The the traditional approach to addressing child poverty is through using welfare programs, financial assistance, um, uh, and that actually doesn't seem to be working, and does seem to have limited effectiveness. Um, Before we come on to the uh, to the Islamic side of the argument. if you were to focus on some of these welfare programs um often these measures fail to provide long-term solutions so there's a growing concern that child poverty is actually increasing in the um, in the UK and necessitating uh, a re-evaluation re- of current strategies so do do you think that we should uh, we, it's time for us to sort of almost take um take a step back and and rethink about this?
2: Of course, um, um, Daniel, the one thing we should always remember is, you know, the children are the future. I've said it on many numerous shows that the next generation is the future. So we should be giving them a place where they can flourish, where they can educate themselves, where they can not have to think about the food for example food is necessity water is necessity um houses is um housing is necessity where they don't have to think about these things then they can flourish more as you've mentioned before um the save children for example said that 30% who um um don't get free um, free school meal for example they fall behind from the peers that's 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 a quite a significant number there yeah. so we should think about how we should leave a place for them where they can Survive for the next generation to come through.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, let's now go straight to our first guest for this segment, who is Sabrina mccullough who is the head of external relations at Money Wellness. Asalam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Good afternoon. Hi. Thank
3: you for for asking me to join you today.
1: Thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Really pleasure to have you. So, uh, Sabrina. We all know that there is, at the moment, there is a cap uh, that has been actually placed uh, by the government. So this was introduced under universal credit in 2013, and it restricts the payment of additional child um, elements to the first two children in a household if the third or subsequent children born after April 2017. Um, Your thoughts on... um, uh, on whether this is the right thing to do and or, or whether this, there is time now to revisit this strategy?
3: Absolutely, time to revisit this strategy. Um, you're absolutely correct. The support provided through the Child Tax Credit and Universal Credit has been limited to two children um, since April 2017. So any subsequent children born after that date are not eligible for further support. So clearly that means that families with younger children are going to be hit hardest by this policy and um, money wellness have been seeing a growing rise in families that are unable to afford essentials such as baby formula which in itself is almost 30 percent more expensive now than it was two years ago um, and child poverty is estimated to cost the uk government about 39 billion pound a year which is significantly more than it would cost to reverse this policy so we've been Pushing alongside lots of other organisations to um, have this policy um, ended and have this reversed.
2: Yes. So, for, um, Sabrina, for example, you just mentioned here, thirty-nine billion dollars um, will be um, is is the, the amount of the money the government is lift, um, paying towards this. So, if this cap is lifted, um, what immediate um, impact? does the department foresee on the reducing of child poverty?
3: So, uh, for, for us, I mean, we all know that poverty at any age can lead to negative impacts, but for children it can have an acute impact on their physical and mental health and also on their educational outcomes, so it's very difficult to learn and concentrate when you're perhaps hungry or, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you're not able to focus. So in terms of what impact it would have, so we know that one in 10 children are affected by this policy and scrapping the two child limit could lift a quarter of a million children out of poverty directly, okay. as well as improving the financial circumstances of a million children. So it, it's not small numbers, it's it's Correct. real big impact.
2: So, for example, you just mentioned here, um, if this ban is lifted, about a quarter of a million uh, children will be lifted out from here, um, from the poverty line, or one one in ten uh, child are affected by this. Can there not be another as a resolution to this, for example, providing better jobs for the parents?
3: Um, so, actually, it's a it's it's a bit of a, a myth that people um, who are receiving these these benefits and this support aren't working. Uh-huh. Um, a huge number of people that, that are receiving um, the benefits that are capped at the moment are actually in work um, and often have multiple jobs. So it isn't necessarily um, you know, an issue that can be resolved by going back into work. It really is something that we need the government to step in and make a change on.
1: Okay. Right. So so you, the point that you're making is that uh, it's, it's really about the cost of living crisis then?
3: Absolutely right. So, the, the costs that have been rising for the last two years or so are things that affect us all. So, um, the cost of mortgages and rent and food and fuel and um, energy, all of those costs are ones that affect everybody, regardless of your um, financial or um, demographic circumstances. So. Families are really struggling to be able to keep up with that cost of living and no amount of work is helping. And ultimately, it's the children that are suffering as a result of this policy.
1: What would you say um, to the statistic, uh, which is often thrown around, that uh, it, despite the help that the government is actually um, uh, is actually putting out there uh, in terms of free school meals, the, um, the academic performance of those children remains below power a below power rather
3: um so i think in relation to free school meals so we know that um sadiq khan recently announced an initiative in london to make sure that all primary school age children would receive a free school meal and money wellness would like to see an extension of that across the country so i think currently only children from households with an income of below i think it's about seven thousand five hundred or seven thousand four hundred pound a year are eligible and that threshold hasn't increased since 2018 despite all of these rising costs that we've discussed so I think ensuring that as a minimum children have got access to a hot meal at school it would ease the burden on already struggling families and also ensure that we provide children with the best opportunity to learn you know as I say how how can we expect them to concentrate and to learn and really grasp what they're, they're there to achieve if they're focused on how hungry they are.
1: Sabrina, we're about to enter uh, the election year. Do you see that uh, as part of the manifesto of any of the major parties to um, increase this funding?
3: Um, We'd certainly like to see the removal of the um, two-child cap in both party uh, manifestos, all party manifestos, but um, unfortunately at the moment it isn't, which is why we are encouraging people to engage um, with their MPs to call for a change to um, the policy and to make clear that that would be an important part of what they were considering when thinking about voting.
1: Right. For those who... um actually do fall under the poverty line. Are there any other support programmes which are available which um, which people don't use in general?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of children specifically, um, the two-child limit rule, it only applies to the child element, so it doesn't apply to help things like childcare costs or passported benefits, Um so any additional support you might receive for disabled children or child benefits, for example, are available for any child that you're responsible for. Um, and if you're more than 10 weeks pregnant or if you've got a child under four, you might be entitled to get help um, on the uh, Healthy Start scheme, which is helped to provide um, healthy food and milk and things. But even um, that scheme, local authorities have called for that payment amount to increase by 20% because... The payments that people receive on those don't even cover the price at the moment of any um, first infant formula because the cost has skyrocketed. Um, But, I mean, Money Wellness can support people by completing benefits assessments to ensure that um, you're receiving everything that you're entitled to and support people to build a budget as well that helps you to make the most of the money that you do receive. So. Support is available and it's really important that, that people are aware and that they can go and seek
2: that if they need it. Yes. So, um, been apart from the two child cap, for example, are there any more specific policies, um, areas in the department focusing on um, reducing this um, extreme poverty for children?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, so the other key one, as I mentioned earlier, yes. is the um, free school meals. So brilliant of, of Sadiq Khan to uh, to announce recently that initiative in London. But really, we would like to see that extended um, across the country. You know, £7,400 is the threshold level um, for, for being eligible for that. It's just such a low amount. So... Families now, we know um, middle-income families are also starting to struggle, so m- many more uh, families with children are pushed below that, that um, kind of poverty line mm-hmm. and it's really important that we make sure that children have got access to a hot school meal.
2: So moving forward for the UK, what can we as a general public also um, do to help um, the people in, in in help of need?
3: So I think first of all is make sure that um, where you can write to your MP calling for a change to these policies that are pushing people and driving um, poverty such as the two child cap and making them aware that children having free school meals is a priority for you if it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the second thing is you know the need for advice and support is growing across the UK the increased bills are affecting us all and um, making sure that there's no shame in asking for help if if have open conversations about money and let people know that there is support available so um, as i say money wellness can check um that people are receiving all the benefits they're entitled to we can support to create a budget provide advice on debts and recommend um you know best next steps and things but um and there's lots of information available as well on the uh, website at moneywellness.com so it's it's Help is out there, and I think it's really important that we all start to talk about what those um, support measures are that we need, and, and try and support each other as a community.
1: So, Ben, while um, you've made a very strong case that um, this um, this dude, dude child cap needs to be lifted, uh, what are the what's the long term solution of it? Because um, even if this gap was lifted it's not going to solve the entire problem, is it? Uh, it's probably going to lift, as you said, a million children um, uh, out of the poverty line, but still there will be quite a few millions still left uh, in, in the poverty um, or under the poverty line. So, you know, in terms of, um, of long-term holistic solutions, how do we approach this, program, uh, this problem holistically?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ideas and options in terms of what, what can be done. One of them um, that it is being discussed more and more recently is a universal basic income, which is a social uh, welfare proposal in which everybody is um, receives kind of a minimum form of income in order to um, provide for uh, their families, and it's based on metrics that are um, that are real life metrics, so things like um, the cost of food, the cost of bills and energy and rent and mortgage and things like that. So rather than um, payment amounts just being uprated and and um, lifted each year, they're actually lifted on a on a scale that is relative to what the costs are, which I think is really important. Um, so yeah, that's that's one option, but but ultimately we. I think we have a a moral obligation at at the very least to make sure that families that are struggling or um, need support that we are making sure that the government are um, providing that support for them
1: are there particular um, demographics that are affected more uh, uh, or particular areas in the in the uk which are um, which are more deeply affected by this than others
3: um, so in terms of the, the what we see in terms of the need for death advice, um, it is a broad spread really across the UK. We do see um, that people in London, for example, are more likely to, to reach out and, and ask for help, which makes sense because of the increased costs um, associated with living in the capital. Um, larger families are uh, often more affected by uh, changes to benefit policy like the two-child cap. Um, so often we see families that perhaps are, are both working, two-parent families, both working with um, three children, and, and still really struggling to make their money last through to the end of the month. Um, but more recently, we've we've seen an increase in people um, who are on kind of relatively um, generous, you know, income packages, but are still really struggling to just make the money last. It is the cost of things like mortgage increases, so we've seen mortgage payments rise by about £160 a month um, on average and that is only likely to to continue um, whilst we've got so many fixed rates ending, Um, so yeah, it's really an issue that's affecting everybody at the moment.
1: Sure. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. This is, um, yeah, this is uh, a problem that I think we all need to uh, to talk about and address, um, and and canvas for, given that uh, the election year is upon us. Because, um, as Imam Saad earlier, said that you know children are really the future of um, uh, of, of our nation. So, um, so thank you very much for all the work that you're doing, and um, thank you also for joining us this afternoon. Have a lovely weekend ahead. Thank you, Angie. Bye, bye. Peace be with you. So that was uh, Sabrina McCullough from the head of external relations, um, who is the head of external relations at Money Wellness. Let me go straight now to our second guest um, for this segment, who is Joseph Elliot. And Joseph Elliot is the analysis manager at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Aslam alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show.
4: Thank you
1: very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Joseph. Uh, really a pleasure to have you. Yeah, so your department um, recently um, issued a report uh, and some key findings around the topic that we're talking about, which is child poverty. Uh, can you just take us through the, maybe the headlines or the, uh, the important stats? I did read out some at the sure. beginning of the show, but uh, um, what would you really like to highlight in terms of your findings?
4: Yes, so this is one of the um, the flagship reports we publish as an organisation. For the last six years or so, we've been tracking levels of destitution across the country, and our most recent report has found a very large rise in the number of people who've experienced destitution. So, around three point eight million people, including one million children, that's around like one in twenty people in the country, or about three and a half thousand primary schools worth of children have experienced destitution at some point over the last 12 months and by destitution the word you know almost sounds a bit Victorian but it really is you know the most extreme form of hardship that a person can experience going without adequate food or being able to keep your home warm and being able to replace clothes or, or keep the lights on in your house so we've seen a real um, real stark shocking rise in the rate of, of destitution particularly um, among children The number of children in destitution has tripled um, since 2017. So um, a really alarming trend that we're seeing in our country. So
1: can you give us some numbers? So when you say tripled, they've gone from what to what level?
4: Uh, Gone from a third of a million to a million. So, um, yeah, one million children uh, currently in the UK have experienced destitution over the course of the last year.
1: Right. And and how do you define destitution? You mentioned, you know, lack of heating, but is there an economic measure
4: that you use? Yeah, so we have quite a technical definition. We call it quite a robust methodology that I won't go get into it and the technical details necessarily, but essentially it's a survey of destitution services across the UK. Um, but really it, it is a question of people whose basic physical needs are not being met, um, whether that is being able to adequately feed themselves, adequately, adequately heat their home or afford hygiene products or lighting, um, or you know, in the very worst cases, the worst case scenario would be people who are rough sleeping, um, and do not have a home at all. Uh, do not have any shelter whatsoever. Um, so that's essentially what we mean by destitution.
1: And how many adults would fall within that definition?
4: It would be two point eight million adults, three point eight million people in total um, in the country,
1: and one million so, children.
4: Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not necessarily all of those things. Obviously, like most people who are in destitution, mm. will have a you know a fixed abode, if you like. They will have a, a house. And um, so a small minority will be people who are rough sleeping or experiencing homelessness or living in temporary accommodation. Um, but many of them will be people who will be experiencing things like being unable to put food on the table, relying on charity services or food banks for, for their food or um, sometimes, you know, relying on warm banks to, to go and um, find some heat when their their home is chilly in the winter. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a trend that's escalating and we really need government to step, step up and take some action to to address this problem
1: and is there a a north-south divide in terms of where we find these people more or is it sort of equally distributed throughout the uk
4: oh no there definitely are geographic trends i mean we we know that like you know london is an incredibly wealthy city and incomes are often higher in london but the rate of destitution is actually highest in london itself and we do see the rate of poverty as well as high in london but then beyond london we see high rates of destitution in the northeast and northwest in england um, particularly in areas you might describe as you know post-industrial so where the, you know the, the lots of jobs previously would have been in manufacturing and and in industry um, and in coastal towns as well so places that would have had you know thriving um, tourist economies for example but since um, in Seine, those, those areas are, are, are more deprived and experience a much higher rate of destitution um, but there are also other trends too so we see Ethnic minority families, particularly Bangladeshi and Pakistani households in the UK, um, and families from um, black British and and black African, black Caribbean families in the UK are much more likely to be experiencing destitution too. So there are kind of um, certain groups of people within society who are much more exposed and much more at risk.
1: And is that because of uh, lack of education in these communities? Is that because of uh, maybe other cultural factors? What does your research suggest?
4: Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say cultural factors. There are. There are. I think you've probably described them more as like structural racism, um, within mm-hmm. within systems. Um, so structural disadvantage that's built in. You know, often these communities will live in you know cities and, and more expensive areas. Often the employment outcomes aren't as good. So, disproportionately higher unemployment rates, um, among certain um ethnic minority women in particular, um, as well as trends in uh, the the rates of pay that they receive. So. I just saw a statistic recently that said, for example, one in ten Bangladeshi and um, sorry, one in one in five Bangladeshi and one in ten Pakistani workers in the UK were paid below the minimum wage compared to three in a hundred workers overall. So you have these sort of like structural drivers and um, um, inequalities in employment outcomes, and um, also the more likely to be working in insecure work. These are all factors that um, combine to to increase the risk of the, the precarity of, of people's lives um, and the risk of experiencing poverty and destitution.
2: So Joseph, as you mentioned before, um, since twenty seventeen, uh, it has um the child um, um, destitution has um, tri- um tripled, and we reach about one million. So, can you um help us understand um mm. what magnitude of this issue is and what impact um it or the effects it is it's having on the children?
4: Yeah, I mean I heard um your your previous um guest was absolutely spot on describing the sort of long-term impacts it has on children's life chances and opportunities. Obviously, in the moment, it has a huge impact on the physical and mental health of the child and the educational um, development. And that then sort of reverberate through their life, through their lifetime. I mean, to take the most extreme, it, you know, shortens people's life expectancies. People in the most deprived areas have shorter life expectancies than those in um, the least deprived areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and their employment opportunities um, their employment outcomes are, tend to be worse as well. Um, so as well as you know, the sort of immediate impact on children who are you know, going to school hungry or maybe feeling stigma and shame with you know, clothes that are you know, in need of replacing because they're too small or, or worn out. Um, those sort of immediate psychological impacts um, yes. are stark, the long-term impacts as well, both on the children themselves but also on our society more like broadly. Shame it brings um, for people experiencing that, and it, it really does kind of shame us as a society that so many people are experiencing this level of hardship.
2: So, just just you just mentioned, for example, the clothing issue, the food issue, the hunger issue. So, what can we as um, the public do then, for example, to help these children because they are the future of our um, of, of, of our great country? So, what can we do for them?
4: I mean, as a society, we are. Obviously, very compassionate, and you know, people do donate to food banks, and people do support local initiatives to help people who are, um, you know, facing these hard times. And, and that is great, and we should be doing that mm-hmm. um, as a society. We have so many charitable options out there to help people when they're struggling. Great. I think we want to see we want to see more robust systemic solutions as well. So, you know, encouraging our politicians to adopt policies that will help prevent people from falling on hard times and um, falling into destitution, whatever you know, life events happen and maybe they'll lose their job or they fall sick. Losing a new job shouldn't condemn you to having to become destitute or, or live in poverty. The system should provide and the system should be robust enough to ensure that um, it, it's there whenever you need it. So having an adequate social security system is ultimately the, the key the key solution and um, that we need government to adopt.
1: Going back to the numbers, uh, some of the numbers you quoted there, Joseph, so... Uh... Give us a sense of what the dichotomy is there between, let's say, white and non-white um, people uh, under the poverty line. So, out of the 2.8 million you said uh, total number under the poverty line, how many? Uh, what percentage would be white?
4: I haven't got those exact breakdowns um, in terms of the destitution rate, but if we look at things like the poverty rates, so you got to what the poverty rate for white British people is about 20%. If we look at Bangladeshi communities, it jumps up to around fifty percent. So that's a huge, huge disparity there. People from Pakistani communities in the UK that jumps up to over four in ten. So the the poverty rate for certain minority ethnic groups in the UK is much much higher than than average.
1: Mm. And you know we we often hear this 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 term, and uh, and often people are actually quite surprised uh, to hear that people um that children in this country in in great britain great uh maybe in bold and underline there uh actually do show up in schools hungry how often do you actually your your findings support that
4: yeah no our fi- findings entirely underline that the things we we as alongside this the quantitative research so the, the literal surveying of the numbers people experience and that we asked people um, qualitative questions. If you like asking them to describe the sort of things that they had experienced. And some of the things that people told us in, in, in the research were, you know, harrowing. And, and it, it kind of makes you think back to Victorian times when people mm. are experiencing these levels of hardships that are so extreme. I mean, even recently in the last couple of weeks, we heard a story of um, a, t- a teacher who said that a child had missed school because they had food poisoning because their parents had, to ter- had been turning the fridge off to save electricity, and, and the food had gone off, and th- that just seems such an extreme thing to happen in our country, and yet that's the sort of thing that we're hearing. Um, yeah, children going to school hungry, not being able to focus on class, um, losing out on educational development—these are things that really should not be happening in, in our country in the 21st century, and yet it's all too common um, in schools across the country.
1: Do you think something like uniforms, free school meals, will help?
4: Yeah, policies that, that, you know, can provide those sorts of things are exactly what, what's needed. But what we're calling for government to do is to introduce what we're calling an essentials guarantee. I think it would probably surprise your listeners to learn that if they didn't really know that the basic rate of benefits that we give in the country isn't actually based on any objective measure of need. It's sort of an arbitrarily derived measure that has kind of evolved over time. And what we're saying is that that basic rate should actually be based around the, the cost of a value of a basket of goods and services. Um, so essentially like, kind of calculating like, what the average family needs. The Trussell Trust, a respective food bank charity, and ourselves, we've calculated what that would be and I worked it out for the average um, family. And we found that for like, your average single adult without children, the, the basic rate of benefits falls around £40 a week less than they need to get by on. Um, so we're calling for the government to adopt our method of calculating what people need to get by on and introducing that as the basis for the benefits and then ensuring that, People's incomes cannot fall below that level, and um, with things like benefit sanctions, um, so that basically guarantees that um, people can always afford to buy themselves things like you know basic toiletries and adequate food. Um,
1: how do you find this message landing on politicians at the moment? Given that our um, uh, as you may have uh, heard the previous uh, guest saying that uh, none of this is in the radar of uh, the two major parties. It's not part of the existing manifestos. And we're very close um, to another general election now. Uh, and and the government's priority seems to be funding war, wars here and there, rather than putting um, food in our children's mouth. So it, how do you Um, How do you feel about that? And how uh, do you think we're fighting a losing battle here?
4: I mean, I think it really is. So the the job of the public and and charities like ourselves to really reinforce to the political parties, we want to see strong action on these issues. People are worried about the cost of living. The price of goods and services has increased so dramatically. We really need to reiterate to our politicians. I think most politicians go into politics for the right reasons. They do care about these things. Mm. We need to get them to adopt the right policies to help address these issues as well. I mean if we look across the UK we can see examples of um, policies being implemented by politicians that have made a difference. So in Scotland there's a thing called the Scottish Child Payment which is payments that goes um, specifically to families for their children that basically tops up the benefit system and that obviously has a huge impact on the incomes of families with children. The, the UK government could introduce something similar if it wanted to for the rest of the UK not just for Scotland. Um, so there are there are kind of glimmers of hope here and there um, and we do hear, like politicians, often saying the right sorts of things. We just need to see them taking the actions that are needed to address these problems. Um, you know, next week obviously is is a budget. It's a, it's a sorry, the um, the autumn statement. So it's a good mm-hmm. opportunity for the Conservative government to set out what their plan is. How are they going to tackle this issue of, of rising levels of destitution in our country? Um, so we're really hoping that, that they will do the right thing and you know at least make sure benefits keep line with inflation. Um, if not, go further and actually start addressing the issue of of rising destitution in our country.
1: So are things better in Scotland?
4: The rate of destitution is lower in Scotland um, and the rate of poverty has been lower in Scotland as well. So, I mean, I don't want to like comment too much on on differences across the country like that, but the rate of poverty in Northern Ireland and Scotland Mm. tends to be lower and policies there do vary as well. So um, there are mitigations against some of the worst of the, the welfare reforms as we'd see them, things like the the benefit cap and the what we call the bedroom tax through mitigations against those in Scotland and in Northern Ireland so those policies those 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 decisions made by political leaders in those areas have certainly sort of softened the the um the, of the worst effects of, of those of those changes in policy. so you know you can see that they really clearly do have, a, have an impact um, on people on the ground
1: Sabrina mentioned earlier that um, if the cap uh, the two child cap is lifted uh, that can help bring uh, almost a million children out of the poverty line. Um, do you know the this this sort of um, relevant economic number? I mean, what what sort of funding uh, are we looking at uh, if we if we talk about bringing those million children out of the poverty line? What's the monetary value of that?
4: Um, do you mean the sorry, Do you mean the cost of the policy, or do you mean the impact on the economy of doing it? I mean, I, to be honest, I don't have the, either the cost, of those, of right. those figures at hand. Okay. I, I, sorry, I don't have, don't have that figure at hand. Now.
1: Sure. Okay, no worries. What What about? So you also mentioned earlier that uh, that what we really need to do is to solve some structural issues here. Um, mm. And unless we we address those structural basic issues, we will never solve these problems. We'll always be yeah. chasing our tails. So what are those structural issues to your mind?
4: I mean, I guess. Uh, I'd point to issues in the housing market, in the employment market and in the benefit system as like the sort of the key three big key areas, if you like. Within housing, You know, people face really high housing costs, they face insecurity of tenure, the, their, their, their risk of eviction is high and, and the, the, what they're paying towards rent is too high. Tackling issues in the housing market is, is, is definitely part of the solution. Building more social homes for social rent um, so that are lower cost. In increasing the rights of renters with the renters' reform bill, which is actually currently working its way through Parliament, those two things would um, make a huge difference to people's lives. In terms of employment, you know, improving job quality, ensuring that people are being paid the minimum wage. There are too many, there are plenty of people out there who are being paid less than the minimum wage. Um, so better regulations in work and making sure that um, people's contracts are, are secure and they're not facing precarity of um, you know, of employers and, and, and per-quality work. And then in the benefit system, it is really just about making sure that the social safety net is robust and people aren't falling through, whether that is because of policies like the benefit cap or freezes in benefits or the two child limit or, or whatever whatever policy you want to point to that has kind of undermined the value of a benefit system. The benefit system is currently the least generous it's been for 40 years. Um, and those are political choices that have been made that have diminished its value. And we can, if we want to, um, improve that. Um, so those are kind of, the, the, I guess, those, those are the three big things they point to would be changes in um, in benefits in, in employment law um, and the quality of work and in the housing market as well.
1: Joseph, thank you so very much for joining us. It was uh, such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for making us all wiser. Uh, thank you also for all the excellent work that you're doing. Uh, really appreciate your uh, joining the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Have a lovely weekend and peace be with you. So that was Joseph Elliott, who is the analysis manager at Joseph Roundtree Foundation, uh, talking to us about uh, the report that they've recently released, uh, as well as uh, all the steps that need to be taken to uh, to address this this very important critical issue, which is which is child poverty, and uh, which obviously is related to. Um, to poverty in general but uh, uh, you know this is uh, this is heartbreaking stuff some of this uh, imam Saad. i mean if you if you think about this uh, you know uh, pupils showing up at schools uh hungry yes that i mean we used to think that that's something that uh is for africa. Not for Great Britain. I mean, this is this is really startling, isn't it?
2: Hence, that's why we're talking about it today, um, Daniel. You know, that's why I asked um, Sabrina, for example, that question: What should we, as a general public, do mm. to help them, them out? And the good answer she gave was: um, We should write letters, um, getting this issue raised up with our MPs, campaign, local, with a yeah. campaign, get mm. them realise yes, that our own children in our own backyard they are starving. Because it, as mentioned earlier, they are the future of our great nation. Mm. So if you're not looking after them, mm. how can we develop even further from, from where we are at this moment, the, the developed um, country we are at this moment, how can we um, progress further mm. if that's not happening? As even mentioned by Joseph, that the physical and the mental capacity, uh, um, capacity um, gets affected due to hungerness and due to lack of um, the facilities needed for them to develop. So these are the things which we, as a nation, should think about, and especially our government needs to think about. Yes, these are the um, pressing issues in our own backyard. Before we go somewhere else, let's let's resolve them first, and then from there we can go on further.
1: Sure, absolutely. We've got about uh, fifteen minutes or so left for the show, um, and I want to turn to you now to talk about the 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 islamic side of things of what is the the concept of a welfare state in islam i mean there, there are two or three things that joseph mentioned at the end so he mentioned that housing support is is very very important yes um the su- work uh, oh, yeah exactly employment uh, but before that you know the the security to um uh, to ins- food security or the you know the state Ensuring that no citizen actually sleeps hungry, so food, shelter, um, uh, those are the basics. So, w- what does Islam say, and what does uh, what's the Islamic concept of a welfare state?
2: Of course, um, there's a system, for example, called zakat, which is called charity, and within that. Is where the wealthy pays two point five percent. I'm not going into more detail due to time shortage. Sure. Um, that's on the money which is saved over there and not been touched at all. Just just for the context. So if it.
1: so, if I had a savings of uh, let's say uh, you know whatever hundred thousand. Yes. And um, uh, and I don't use that those funds and they're just lying yes. uh, you know uh, idly, idly in a. In a in a bank account Correct. for a whole year, then 2.5% of, of that, that would be deducted, deducted. Uh, as the Kaat in an Islamic state, in sl- and, state and then given out to poor.
2: It's basically tax. It's Islamic version of tax, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. In, in simple terms. And from that, they will um, calculate, okay, what is needed where? And mm-hmm. from there, the, gov- that's, that's the that's the thing. Then the government, the body at that time, right. will decide, okay, X amount will go here. Okay, this, this we have food coming in now. This will go to this area. That's more here. Okay, we have wheat now. We have rice now. We have this money. Okay, left and right. And that will be distributed amongst um, the poor. So these are the um, very simple things. And also in the Holy Quran, it is mentioned take alms out of the wealth so that thou um mayest cleanse them and purify them thereby. So it is of, uh, the responsibility if Allah the Mighty has given me, let's say, X amount of money, right? It is my responsibility to look out for, for the brothers and sisters who don't have that money because Allah the Almighty has given me the, that responsibility mm. to make sure that everyone who's around you is fed and they are sleeping with a full um, full stomach. But what happens is um, we see due to um, human greed, due to whatever factors you can put in is that, okay, if wealth comes to me, I, I try to um, keep it with myself. And that's not the right way of Islam. Islam says if something comes to you, you should um, recycle it, so that more money can come to you again, the more wealth can come towards you again. And one thing which is that you know, in in the Holy Quran, it is stated that you shouldn't you shouldn't um, kill, or I shouldn't um um what um if I if I get the wording right, is that again, kill not your children um for um for the fear of poverty, mm-hmm. but Allah the Mighty. So we who provide for them. Mm. And for you also, for, for the parents. And surely killing them is a great sin. So we shouldn't be thinking, about okay, if I have a child, mm. how will he or she survive?
1: Hmm. But Allah the Almighty is stating that
2: we will provide for them as we are providing for you.
1: Yeah, this question was uh, was uh, uh, put to the fourth head of the Ahmadi uh, Muslim community as well. Uh, Hazrat Mejah uh, may Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on his soul. And this is the response that he gave to that question. Let's listen in.
5: That's not because of more children being born. That's because of other factors, economic factors, racial factors, political factors, you know, factors of man's corruption as a a whole. So many things are responsible, (gasps) geographical factors, Mm -hmm. but not the factor of uh, human population by itself. Because droughts and famines and human population have had a constant relationship with each other since times immemorial and when the human population was very little even then very severe droughts and very severe famines were suffered by mankind and uh, still they are faced i mean the same problems are faced and uh, handled by human beings as they were used to be in the olden days let us say we have a hypothetical situation, say, in the middle of Africa somewhere, where a Muslim, say, you know, knows how the situation is on famine and something like that and decides not to have more children because of the situation he is in. Wherever this question will be raised with reference to the shortage of food, the Holy Quran would prevent such family planning on the basis that it is a reflection on God. The fact is that the... A few months ago, when the Nigerian Delibian representative came, came to ask a few questions, this issue was also partially raised, and I counted the factors which were responsible for the shortage of food in Nigeria. That was human corruption, not uh, the increased number of, of children they were giving birth to. The fact is, when the corrupt people send their wealth out through illegal means and back doors what would be left for the country would be short, less than the country's requirements, mostly. And uh, there is a limit when everything is smuggled out, then whether you are left with less population or more population, you still face the problems. And there are so many other factors. I mean, this is not just a simple population question. What would happen to the poor countries now if they start family planning and the rich countries do not? This should be the logical corollary from this, if you accept it in principle. That would be that, First of all, the, the rich countries are already dominating the world and because of having improved their health and uh, improved their chances of survival and achieved greater longevity, they are already much, much better off and population wise also there is a possibility of an explosion there. If the poor country on the other hand are advised, stop <laughs> producing children, that is your answer. What would be the result? Such people would ultimately be made extinct. Now this is not just a theoretical threat. In Australia this is exactly what happened. They made uh, these aborigines to go into family plannings and created conditions where they could not reproduce as fast as the whites did there. The result is that already extinction extinction is threatening them and uh, threatening them so fast that in fact a majority of their olden tribes, who spoke about 600 different languages, already no more. Mainly about six or six main languages or about 20 some dialects are left out of the 600 languages once spoken. And now the government is reversing the policy and trying to save them like the animals are saved from extinction. Just to keep them as historic, you know, facts fed, of, of the olden times. And what about the red Indian population in America? What is the problem there? Is it a food shortage problem or what? So, apply these factors to the realities of modern days and then you'll come to the conclusion that the Holy Quran is right and they are wrong. It is the human corruption and the wrong attitudes of the powerful people which are creating all these problems and the selfish attitudes of the rich people.
1: So that was uh, Hazrat Mezzatayram, the fourth head of the the Muslim community and the fourth successor to the Promised Messiah talking about this this issue uh, of um, uh, whether or not killing of children um, is allowed in Islam and uh, I think that debate can extend to uh, to abortion as well uh, in within Islam within Islamic teaching if the parents think that they won't be able to to feed their children and that's obviously not allowed uh, as he um, as he clearly explained there. Um, it is mentioned in the um, in the Holy Quran, Um, also mentioned, I should say, in chapter 2, verse 2 and 6, they ask thee what they shall spend, say whatever of good and abundant wealth you spend should be for your parents and near relatives and orphans and the needy and the wayfarer. And whatever good you do, surely Allah knows it perfectly well. And Imam Saad, so this goes yes. back to the point that you were making about the importance of the system of zakat in, in Islam. Correct. But also the importance of just looking after your neighbors, just looking after the people around you, just looking after the society. And uh, we've seen examples of that uh, within Islamic history, have you not?
2: Correct. For example, if you just look at the time of Hazrat Umar, may Allah have... Um, the second caliph um, of, sec- of Islam. Of Islam yeah? May Allah have on him. That, you know, he was... He, renowned very prominent person very um, very strict and very strong person but when it came to time for example where there were a Bedouin woman who didn't have any food for her children he himself took a um, um, flower of wheat bag put it on his back and he took Mm -hmm. it to her Mm. And and gave it to that woman who who was in need. But right. so he was the caliph of that time. He mm. was um, the king per se. Yeah. And that For that and the king is going Big, to, to to some, that to did. to the lady, and mm. he gave you know that flower or, or or the bag of flour to her, so she can feed her children. Um, that that's what the Islamic um what's it called um era tells us about. Mm. Likewise, for example, when he was returned when he returned back from Syria to Medina, mm. and that time a he passed from a elderly woman's tent and she was like, "Um, what has Umar done for us? Right. He has done um, what he since he has come, what he had, what, uh, what did he do for us? He didn't, he hasn't even paid a single dinar to me. Mm -hmm. And has Umar mentioned him that he was like, I'm getting the similar kind of complaints that why Umar? Why? What can I, what should I do? Right. Mm -hmm. And he then he used to go and, you know, make sure that they were fed but they were looked after. He, mm. The king at that time, he was mm. making sure that the individuals were um, living properly, they were mm. well fed. And this is what the Islamic um, history so it's teaches a responsibility us. responsibility of the responsibility.
1: state yes. to provide food and provide shelter and to provide all the basic needs uh, to its um, Hence, citizens.
2: Hence, as, as Sabrina mentioned before, we should write letters to our local yeah. MPs or MPs right. so t- to raise awareness. That's why we're sitting here today to raise that campaign making sure that the awareness out there to the listeners and they can write letters to the mp saying okay we this is what needs to be done for the betterment of our children and the future of this great country
1: mm-hmm. T- till then we have to see what happens sure absolutely and and i know you've, we've got to uh, we've got a campaign for something as important as this and um and also got to pray that uh, uh that we actually succeed in those campaigns. Thank you very much um, for that, uh, Imam Saad. Right, that brings us towards the end of uh, this segment in which we're talking about child poverty. And we've talked at at length about what child poverty means, uh, what does it mean to lift uh, those children out of poverty, what sort of funding would be needed, what sort of policy changes would be needed, And we've spoken to uh, two people who um, are actually part of the campaign to actually change things here in the UK. So the great work that they're doing. If you haven't had the opportunity to listen to this show, you can always go into SoundCloud and listen to the recording. We will now break for the five o'clock news. um, And... um, uh, before um, we do that, however, just a reminder. Uh, just just ju- a reminder, sure?
2: and also the answers we got from our, the general public. Oh, about yeah, the, the, survey, inter- yeah. Uh, uh, the survey. So we asked this question, what should the government be doing to tackle child poverty? So 26% said increased child benefit, 26% said free school meals. Thirty percent said local manage uh, funds for families in crisis, and seventeen percent said no caps on benefits. Likewise, if you want to give us your answer even after the show, you can call us on 02086877878 or you can message us via Twitter, Instagram, at Voice of Islam UK. So let us know your answer even after the show.
1: Absolutely. No, thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Imam Saad, for reminding me to to do that uh, and for sharing the results of that survey. Yeah, so uh, the next segment is uh, is going to be about uh, the current crisis in the Middle East and what the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is doing um, in terms of the campaign that it's launched called Voices for Peace. Um, there was an event which was held only last week in the House of Commons and uh, we will talk uh, more on that issue in the next one hour. So do stay tuned. Thank you very much for being part of uh, this show for the last one hour. But do stay tuned. We will be back after these messages and after the news break.
0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed.
1: Assalamu warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Drive Time Show from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. I have over here with me Imam Saad and also Imam Reza. Um, so we shall be talking about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict um, and uh, the current crisis that's going on mm-hmm. in the Middle East. And we will be focusing on the campaign, the recent Voices of Peace campaign mm-hmm. launched by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and initiated actually by the, uh, under the guidance of His Holiness, Hazrat Mizza Masur Ahmad, who is the current head and the, caliph of the community so the situation in gaza is beyond desperate at the moment and as his holiness mentioned in his uh, friday sermon today as well the brutality on palestinians just continues to increase um i was listening in yesterday to francesca albanese um who is uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. And she referred to what's going on there as genocide. Um, And and, and she's the the responsible person of the United Nations uh, there, no less. Israel-Palestine conflict, as we all know, is a deep-rooted conflict. At the heart of the conflict is uh, the, this competition this, uh, of land between Jews and Arabs, um, and that has led to many wars and crises uh, over the last 70, 75 years or so. Imam Reza, your, um, firstly, your thoughts on uh, what His Holiness um uh, mentioned in the Friday sermon today as well as your thoughts on this um, campaign Voices of Peace initiated by the community well, I
6: think this is something that echoes whatever uh, what, what everyone in society, the majority in society, uh, of the people are saying here in the British society as well as around the world um, it's if you look at the previous conflicts if you look at the previous um, escalation of this conflict I think uh, people were less informed. People were less interested, even. But also, the 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 levels of atrocities committed by one side uh, now uh, were were unmatched in in, in the previous uh, conflicts or in in the in the past. Yes, of course. I mean, there's the talk of uh, 1947, 1948. What happened in, in in that time? We're looking at almost more than half a million Palestinians. Being displaced, being forced out. Um, but the the level of reporting, the level of knowledge, the level of information that we have now, I think it has forced the world to accept and to believe and make a, and make an informed decision which was lacking in the past because you had major media outlets telling you basically what narrative you have to follow. Mm-hmm. But nowadays you have people on the ground you have even live video uh, you know feeds that tell you what exactly is happening in, in Gaza. And if you again, this is a line that I've heard through and through uh, social media and also on on different major news outlets that if you have any kind of compassion, if you have any kind of heart, if you're a parent, if you're a brother, if you're a sister, if you're if you're a, a mother or a father, it, whatever role in a family that you take up it is impossible for you to close your eyes it is impossible for you to look the other way when unfortunately we still have people in society who are doing that however i un- f- very very fortunate enough are we that we s- we see people now coming onto the streets we see people now taking action we see people now standing up and raising that voice and for us I believe it started, what, six weeks ago, five weeks ago, the first week, when His Holiness, Hazrat Mizam Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and the fifth successor to the Promised Messiah on whom be peace, when he, in his Friday sermon, which is so crucial, so vital for the global community of, of Ahmadi's, millions and millions of people across the globe, when he spoke about this. And it wasn't after October 7th that he started talking about this this has been ongoing for the past two decades he's been speaking about justice the need for absolute justice Mm. if we give the rights to people on one side what what are the reasons that we don't look the other way what are the reasons there is there are no reasons right so there's vested interest there's political interest there's egotistical interests um Mm. that enable a person to look the other way when it comes to one group of people Mm. but don't you know, uh, take any side or any any action when it comes to another group of people mm. and you're absolutely right you have now not just <clears throat> pundits and, and individuals calling that this is against international law that this is uh, genocide that this is uh, ethnic cleansing, these are official reports mm. the United Nations Save the Children um, you have Amnesty International and so many more organizations labeling it, calling it, proving it to be, if you want to call it genocide, apartheid, whatever label you want to put on. But it's not hidden anymore. So when His Holiness on the 13th of October, he stated that whatever injustice and cruelty Hamas committed, the response to that that or war should have been restricted to Hamas. However, the indiscriminate response of the Israeli government is extremely dangerous, and it seems that this conflict will not end here. Mm. This is on the thirteenth of October, almost a month ago. Yeah. In fact, it cannot even be imagined how many innocent women, children, elderly, and civilians will lose their lives. The Israeli government has suggested well, 15, it will. Just, is dying, died uh, so, so we're we're looking at fifteen. So the, at that point, mm. was it, it was like two, three thousand maybe, mm. but mm. we're looking at fifteen thousand plus. And then he continued to say that the Israeli government has suggested it will destroy Gaza, and to this end, they have carried out severe and overwhelming bombardment. They have turned the city to dust. Now, the most recent development is that the Israeli government is telling a million or so people to leave northern Gaza immediately. And the pictures are heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Beyond heartbreaking. Beyond heartbreaking. So there is no other option. If you call yourself a human being... If you call yourself a, a member of any religion, any faith, if you
1: believe in a higher being, then you have no other option. If you call yourself option. a human being, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I say mean, exactly that. Humanity, I mean. your, your humanity demands that. There's one very important point that I want to make today, which is uh, about what the uh, the media in general, the Western media in particular, actually has been missing. And that point is about Israel's right to self-defense. Now, again, I'd go back to Francesca Albanese, the UN Special Rapporteur, and and she said that as per international law, and I quote, Israel does not have the right to self-defense. Why? Because Israel is an occupier. If Israel was fighting another country, if the attack had come in from Lebanon or from another sovereign country, from Jordan or from Egypt, then Israel would have a right mm. to self-defense. But in this particular case, according to Francesca Albanese, I must stress, who is currently the United Nations special rapporteur in Palestine, she says that uh, the Israel, uh, because Israel is an occupier of the territories of Gaza. Israel doesn't have the right to self-defense. The other important point that the Western media keeps on missing is that they keep on focusing on the events of October 7. And everybody, every presenter wants to take you to number one wants you to start off any discussion condemn what's happened on what happened on October 7 before they actually begin to discuss with you or want to even discuss with you anything else well absolutely it's it's to be condemned any in any any loss of life any loss of innocent life, Mm. civilian life, is to be condemned no matter what the caste, creed, religion is. So, uh, yes, a Jewish child, is uh, loss of a Jewish child is as important as that of a Palestinian child. But the point that we are missing, and the Western media keeps on missing, is that what happened on October the 7th is the proximate cause. That's not the actual cause. The actual cause is the occupation. Which has been going on for seventy years, and has led to many brutal um, attacks uh, by the Israeli authorities. And and what we see, Hamas didn't exist more than twenty years ago. There was no Hamas. Um, uh, There is no Hamas, I should say, in the West Bank. Mm. And yet, from October the seventh, one hundred sixty Palestinians have died as a result of aggression by, by by israeli settlers there what what has has brought about the death of those 160 160 civilians yeah there is no hamas in uh, in western media why are we not talking in, in in the west bank why are we not talking about that and why do we keep harping on the proximate cause which is what happened on october 7th Without looking at the real cause, which is the occupation, Hamas is fighting the occupation, and one thing obviously leads to another, and and violence breeds violence. Israel expelled seven hundred fifty thousand Palestinians, many of them now cramped into um, uh, into Gaza, and um, a, a, and that particular violent policy, as I said, violence breeds violence, and unfortunately, that has. Um, uh, led to one event after the other and unfortunately we, we we arrive at where we are today but I think that it's very important to understand what the actual cause is only mm-hmm. then can we unless we frame and the think, issue in the right yeah. perspective we will not be able to find solutions and I think this is, this is
6: exactly what is happening today so the world I've seen so many Again, uh, no. If, I'm, I,
1: if I can, sorry. If I can interrupt, I think sure. what is happening today, Imam Raza, is that this whole conflict, especially if you listen to the Western media, has been reduced to sound bites. Yes, yes, of course. That's what's happening. But
6: but what I'm coming at is from the other side that people are now aware of of the history of this conflict, whereas people before. Did not well, I'm, I'm, I'm
1: not as much as they are thanks to social media. Yes, exactly.
6: Yeah. So maybe they did not care. Again, this is this is yeah. my way of thinking, or they were not interested. Whatever the reasons were, but now because it is gone beyond any kind of uh, threshold, it has crossed all thresholds. Mm. People are making those. Those those decisions. They're looking into the history of things, and you've seen on social media. You've seen on 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 written on on film on whatever platform you want to look at, where people are coming out and saying that I did not know about this. I was not aware of this. I had this opinion before, but now that I've looked into it, I've researched into it very extensively, very thoroughly, and I see what is happening i i i was forced i had no other option but
1: to change my mind well any normal human being i think would behave in that in that manner because how could you support how could you how could you see a hospital being bombed yeah. and, uh, and and not feel that way you know literally babies gasping for breath because there is no fuel to 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 start their incubators yeah.
6: so on uh uh, the the topic that we are talking about on the 15th of November uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association here in the UK Majlis Khudam ahmadiyya they conducted a Voices for Peace event at the House of Commons um, so you had journalists you had media representatives that were invited to the event where Hussam Zamlat who is the ambassador to the United Kingdom for Palestine and other politicians were talking about the plight of Palestinians and the immediate need for peace in the world. Um, so this, as I said, was was initiated, was started by the Qudam al the youth organization of the MDM community. And you had many guests talking about the need for peace and the, the immediate needs, need for a ceasefire. So throughout the show, we're going to be playing some of those interviews, some of those clips, um, and the speeches and the addresses of those guests who were in attendance. And I think we're going to start off with the ambassador himself, Mr. Hussam Zamlad. I think at the moment he's no um, stranger to anyone who has been following this conflict. He's been appearing on pretty much every major, minor media outlet that you can think of, and he has been uh, advocating every march. Pretty much, he he has attended. So we're going to listen to what he had to say at this uh, Voices for Peace event held at the UK Parliament on this 15th of November.
7: So I repeat my thanks for organizing this very timely and urgent meeting, and it could not be more timely and more urgent. As I walked in, I saw the thousands of British people just outside this whole cross-community from all colors, all backgrounds shouting cease fire now. This brings the best in our humanity. And we are here only an hour and a half before that vote in this very building by UK MPs to call for a cease fire. I just want to start by saying this. You all know what happened over the last weeks. That Israel feels able to raid a hospital as they did last night and this morning, the Gaza main hospital, to kill, to shell the hospital. But Israel feels able to bombard entire neighborhoods, families. That out of the 11,000 people Israel killed in the last weeks, 70% are women and children. That Israel feels able to bombard churches, mosques universities, schools, UN shelters. You know, they have killed more than a hundred, a hundred UN aid workers. Israel is not only violating our very basic international rules. Israel is literally bombing the United Nations. That Israel feels okay and able to starve 2.3 2.3 million people, cutting food, water, electricity, medical supplies, that Israel feels able to target medical staff or journalists. More than 50 journalists were killed since the beginning of this assault. This is a defining moment. And it is no longer about a political failure. This is not just a political failure anymore. This is a moral failure. This is a failure of every government that has aided and gave cover and a green light, and a carte blanche for this to happen. The world is watching and the people of the world are speaking as we are hearing right now. This is a test and a failure of our international system, order, that we have built together as a community of nations after the horrors of the Second World War. This is a dent to our humanity, every one of us. And the four, number one, we are watching and the world is watching this house tonight and every other political house. Anybody who fails to call for an immediate ceasefire fails our humanity, fails our values fails the very purpose of of why we have democratic institutions like this house. And I very much hope that the pressure that is being built here by the power of the people, the British people, and how inspired I am as a Palestinian ambassador to see the massive, massive support for Palestine. 76% of the British people say that they want ceasefire now. That was already two weeks ago. Now maybe it will be much, much higher. When you see one of the biggest demonstrations in the history of this country going out in support of Palestine and in a call for ceasefire, then you know you are on the right side of history. And you know the British people are also on the right side of history. So ceasefire is crucial because what we are demanding is ceasefire to stop the atrocities, the carnage, the mass murder, the mass destruction, And for many, many lawyers, and I see some of them here today, and we have an army of lawyers, they have started describing this as genocide. How else would you explain the targeting of bakeries, for instance? Why are you targeting bakeries? Because you want to drive the people out or they starve to death. So anybody who fails to call for a ceasefire is enabling genocide against the Palestinian people. Number two, we need really to begin to imagine the amount of help our people in Gaza and all over Palestine will need. Israel has destroyed one quarter of Gaza already, and they are ongoing. With a focus on our infrastructure, almost all Gaza universities have been bombarded. Almost all of them. The medical situation, you all have followed. Our medical sector has collapsed completely. I'll be leaving here to another big, massive fundraising by Muslim aid and other organizations. And I tell you, we see the huge, huge goodwill to help. So humanitarian corridors are immensely needed now. And Israel should not be given a veto power over access of international humanitarian assistance, as is the case until now. This is criminal killers, murderers should not have a say or have their hands on a, a tab of water. Lawyers will tell you this is part of the criminality. Number three, we should ensure, absolutely ensure, 100% ensure that this does never happen again. We shall never, nor should you or anyone on this earth Allow for the murder of children as such. For this live show of savagery and barbarism. Never again. And I, as a Palestinian, will spend the rest of my life for this particular idea. Never again, I want to see our families being bombarded as such. Our hospitals, our schools, our streets, our humanity being bombarded. And we have three choices to make sure that this never happens again. The first is we build our own army and protect ourselves. You know we are under full occupation. And you know we are under the oppression of the occupant. But this option must be provided for us at one point in time. It is not available now. Number two option is to call for international forces, peacekeeping forces to come and help and protect Palestinians. But you all know we have the US veto for all these years. We have been calling for international peacekeeping forces to protect the Palestinian people from these atrocities. And not only the US veto, also the UK veto. So what is left for us for the never again, for this never to happen again, is the power of the law. That's what is left for us. We don't have the power of an army to protect our women and children, our families. We don't have the power of the international community because the Security Council has failed. Our global order has failed, has failed all of us, not just the Palestinians, has failed you. So the only option left for us is the power of the law. And this brings me to my main point. We have acceded, the state of Palestine has acceded to the International Criminal Court, ICC, many years ago. We have signed the Rome stature and give full jurisdiction to the ICC already in 2014. We wanted from Early on, this is our policy, that we revert to the power of the law, that the law must be applied equally to ensure that our people are protected. This is a time, and I'm so glad that Karim Khan is with us via video conference. This is his moment. This is the ICC's moment. This is the international judicial system moment, and they should should never fail this moment. Karim, the ICC prosecutor general, Karim Khan, must begin investigating war crimes immediately. And we, as in the state of Palestine, have given the ICC the full mandate to do so. The ICC should not wait for an Israeli approval. They will never get it. They shall not wait for an Israeli cooperation. They will never get it. Killers will not cooperate in investigating their crimes. This is the only way we could actually ensure that this does not happen again. So the burden and the responsibility on the shoulder of the ICC prosecutor general is huge because he and the ICC is all what our people have and you have right now. Given the U.S. position. Number four, we really need to turn this tragedy into hope, to turn the darkness into light, to focus on the root cause of all this. Not to miss the opportunity to bring about a political solution. Enough of partial solutions. Gaza is an integral, beloved part of Palestine. There will not be a solution for Gaza alone. Only a solution for Palestine. All of Palestine. Gaza, Jerusalem, and the West And all those who give us lip service, all governments, for years, decades, about the two-state solution and we support the two-state solution, this is your moment. If you support the two-state solution, start with recognizing the the two states. Why aren't you recognizing the state of Palestine? Every minute you wait is a minute when you give Israel more incentive to build more colonial settlements, send more settler militias, to kill our people, as is happening now in the West Bank. The settler militias and the army has killed more than 200 Palestinian civilians in the West Bank. So the atrocities is not just in Gaza. Because we have two agendas. We have the Netanyahu agenda of of a no two-state solution. He's public about it. A no solution, a non-solution, and we have the Palestinian and the international agenda. This is the moment to enforce it, not to talk about it. That requires recognizing the state of Palestine. This house, this very house, voted in 2014 overwhelmingly to recognize the state of Palestine. And I'm sorry, this is not a charity. This house is the representation of the political will of the British people. And I'll finalize here, why countries like the UK, governments like the UK, block us from going to the ICC, or the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. This is about time that everybody encourages us to use the peaceful legal means to protect our people and bring about accountability. And why some countries like the US block us from becoming a full member state in the UN? Why? If you believe in the two states, why are you doing this? This is the moment when the international community need to get its acts clear. Stop all these confusing, uh, unclear policy and take all of us. This conflict cannot be resolved only by the two parties. There are no two parties in this. There is only one party. This whole 2 2 sidedism doesn't exist. There is one party, that is the occupant, the colonizer, the besieger, the government that enforces and employs a system of, of apartheid on our entire nation. So we need to stop this, and we need to take international action that will establish an international momentum, that will build a peace conference, that will deliver the peace that all of us and the entire world, and the international consensus is behind for all these years. This is not a moment for half-hearted words and statements. This is a moment for action. Thank you.
6: That was Hussam Zomla, the, the Palestinian ambassador to the United Kingdom. Dent to our humanity. The world is watching. The fields to humanity. And the call for a ceasefire was some of the things that he was talking about. And he mentioned Karim Khan, the chief prosecutor of the ICC. We also, I mean, as as he said, he was also in attendance via video link. We're also going to play um, some of the words that he said at this event. Um, but again, we want to highlight that this initiative taken by the youth organization Khudam Lahmdiya UK here in the United Kingdom under the the guidance and under the instructions of His Holiness, hazrat Mizam <laughs> Masood, the current Caliph of the Muhammadiyah Muslim community, is something so vital and so important. Um, because at the end of the day, this is about human life. It doesn't matter what society you belong to. It doesn't matter what nationality you belong to, what passport you hold. We are talking about Innocent people, innocent women, innocent men, innocent elderly, innocent children. And you've heard the numbers, again, if you want to believe it or not, where what the source is, is it the Gaza Health Authority, which supposedly um, is not trustworthy because it is controlled by Hamas, forget about that. The numbers, I'll tell you this, and this is something that His Holiness has said as well, the numbers will rise. The numbers that are given to us are confirmed, but how many thousands of thousands of people are lying under the rubble, dead under the rubble, we don't know yet.
1: Dogs eating their corpses. And We
6: we may even never find out, because what's going to happen after that, only God knows. So this is a time for everyone to come together. If you um, have an opinion on this, by all means, do give us a call on zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK, as well as on Instagram. But I think um, we cannot be silent. We cannot stay silent on this. Everybody has a role to play now. Hussam Zalmat mentioned this that there are the big players, you're talking about the different countries involved in this, you're talking about the injustice that one country is allowed to be a full member but another country is not. One country has a veto power but the majority of other countries don't. So the role of the United Nations, the role of the international community to come back to the things that were agreed upon, even in the Houses of Parliament in 2014 as he, as he mentioned. So if if, if that is what people wanted, if that is what our politicians, our leaders in this country have voted for, then it's time to implement that. And not just speak and speak and speak and just waste that time. We, two, three weeks ago, we said time is running out, time is running out. Well, we didn't really do much, did we? The, the international community for that matter. And in that regard, I think we also want to briefly mention the role of the Muslim community, the role of the Muslim-majority countries, the the failed role of the Muslim-majority countries. I, I remember I went to, I think two years ago, when in 2000, uh, was it, maybe 20 or 21, there was a huge protest here in, in, in London as well. Again, uh, a pro-Palestinian march. So me and another one from from the Warsaw Islam team, we went out, we spoke to people, we got their impressions. And one question that we asked the people there was, where do you see the role of the the Muslim Ummah? So Ummah means nation, basically, which includes all Muslim-majority countries. Not a single person we met, and we spoke to at least 15 people just on this topic, just on this topic, um, not a single person we found that could tell me, yes, they are fulfilling their role. They're fulfilling their responsibility mm. that they owe to their brothers and sisters in that in in, in that region. Not one. Mm. And I think it's it's clear as day. The first two three weeks, you had these last minute conferences. You had these big summits. You had these mm. security summits and peace summits, and achieving were, nothing. Achieving nothing and nothing at all which is again something that his holiness has been highlighting in his friday sermons has been highlighting in the 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 speeches and and the the different uh, uh, talks that he's been given over the past two decades Mm. again this is nothing new but again the world did not pay heed this is a man of god that we're talking about he has no interest in palestine or in israel his interest is humanity Mm -hmm. and humanity alone but, as is the case with the world, as has been the case with prophets in the past, the only thing they receive is, is is mockery. The only thing that they receive is rejection. But when that rejection and that mockery goes so far, God steps in, and He has you know the Prophet Messiah the founder of the Mdm community, on whom be peace, has said that there's a word in 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 the Urdu language, uh, which means so much as he he is ashamed. Uh, for his servant, that people don't listen. Redit, I think, is, mm. is is the word. I'm not sure how you would translate that, but it's it's God. God. God is a, like he becomes so angered that uh, they they are not paying heed for the honor of for the honor of exactly for the honor of of his of his servant, uh, servant of his chosen one, yeah. and his holiness again today he said it again. We are pushing it, we're really, really pushing it to the brink mm-hmm. of that war, and how that war will play out, what will happen in that war, is something that we cannot even imagine.
2: If I just, um, if I just mention a sure. few words, which His Holiness, Ramad, the worldwide um, head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, just a couple of words regarding the Muslim Ummah, hmm stated is you know, the situation is such that I have been informed that those going to Umrah Umrah is a pilgrimage, yes, yes, perform, minor pilgrimage yeah. and being told not to discuss the Palestine Israel conflict yeah. this directive um, this directive comes from the government issuing the visa mm-hmm. if, it, if this is true it reflects extremely cowardice mm. on the part of the Muslim government yeah. nevertheless one should uh, um, duly observe the sanctity of Umrah and um, during it Such matters are not to be discussed, but prayers for the oppressed Palestinians must be offered and those going to Umrah should remember to do so. The voices of Muslim governments are very weak nowadays. Mm. Occasionally, they do raise their voices, but stronger voices are being made by some non-Muslim people, Mm. politicians and governments. So at the end he said, May Allah um, grant Courage and wisdom to mm. the Muslims.
1: You know, this this is the other very very disappointing thing um, that we've we've talked about, or we keep on talking about the role of Western media. But what about the role, or or the lack of any role, mm. uh, of the Muslim governments playing in this? They they can do so much. They have the power. They have the money. They can. There, there is so much that, but unfortunately, they're just nowhere to be seen. They can't even get together, and agree on sanctions on Israel. Forget about anything else. What what strikes me the most when I watch some of
6: those videos that are coming out of Gaza, of those people who have lost, not just one or two family members. We're talking about whole families just being eradicated from from the register. Yeah, and those who are or you could say fortunate or unfortunate enough to, to survive mm-hmm. the words always echo in my head whenever I, I see those videos whenever I hear hear them saying that and they address they address the Muslim leaders directly mm-hmm. saying that They're you different. have failed us yeah. you have failed us the blood of these innocent children is on your hands because you knew better yeah. God has given you the last final book mm-hmm. God has given you the best and the the most noble of all prophets, who left you a legacy of what to do in which situation at every single junction in life, but you chose to disregard that. So that blood is in your hands.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it is uh, very, very painful, unfortunately. Um, uh, Let's now go back to the event that we were talking about, uh, the event at the House of Commons uh, last week, which was held under the auspices of um, the Muslim Youth Association. And uh, we've uh, played the uh, the address of uh, Mr. Hussam Zomlot, who is the Palestinian ambassador here. Let's now play uh, the address uh, also given by Mr. Karim A. E. Khan, who is the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. Let's listen in.
0: This is a perilous moment that the world is facing. Around the world, we see human suffering. We see an absence of peace and a burgeoning amount of conflict, heartbreak and devastation. When one casts one's eyes to the Bangladesh-Myanmar border and looks at the plight of the Rohingya and then turns to the left and sees what's happening in Ukraine, when one looks and sees the rising tide of extremism in the Sahel, the events in Mali, the rapes that are taking place in the DRC, and, of course, the devastation, the stunning, heart-wrenching pictures that have been coming out of Israel and Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza, One wonders, where has peace gone? As prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, I comply with the law. Our mandate is to try to ensure within the jurisdiction of the court that the law is on the front lines. The law is not reserved for lawyers in ivory towers and the ICC cannot be a jurisprudence factory. But with all the emotion that is out there, my message is this. The ICC is actively investigating situations around the world including the Palestine situation. We also have jurisdiction. I've stated quite publicly in relation to the events of the 7th of uh, October in Israel, if they're committed by the nationals of state parties, Palestinians or any other state party for that matter. And we have to ensure these basic minimums, these are not highfalutin ideals. These are not aspirations that should fill us with joy. It is an indictment on us that in 2023, as we send rovers to Mars, as we are doing phenomenal work with vaccines like the COVID vaccine and medical science, that we have a court that is dealing with medieval crimes, genocide, the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part, war crimes or crimes against humanity, including the crimes of persecution. And yet, unfortunately, we need the court more than ever, because there is this proclivity that the rule of law is seen as an optional extra. There is this tendency to view international law as an a la carte menu, that we pick and choose from it when we like it, when it serves a strategic purpose, but we ignore it, we wantonly close our eyes or turn away from it when it represents an impediment to a short-term political goal or a medium-term national interest. The realization surely is now, as we see major conflicts around the world increasing, not diminishing, that a more principled approach is needed to apply the law more consistently even if it comes at a short-term national cost. Because if we don't, in my very sincere view, the idea that our children, God willing, will cure the mistakes of this generation or past generations could be a fatal assumption. Because when one talks about a nuclear-armed world, the idea that things can't get worse is one that must be understood, must be contemplated. So this is a time for action. It's not a time for hot air. It's a time for people to feel the shelter of the law, which requires partnerships. The demand is too big to leave to any one state, any one institution. Justice is too important to leave to the prosecutor of the ICC. It's too important to leave to the judges of the ICC. In justice, in terms of this solidarity, this movement of principle, fairness, representing that every human life matters equally, there can be no bystanders. There can be no no spectators to inhumanity. This is a moment where we should find solutions. I have said very publicly that we are investigating the taking of hostages and the allegations of terrible killings and heartbreak in Israel on the 7th of October. I have said repeatedly Hamas should remove and release immediately hostages. I have said repeatedly Israel must not target civilians, hospitals, schools, mosques, synagogues, churches, Red Cross facilities, Red Crescent facilities. And I have said very clearly that immediately humanitarian supplies must be allowed into Gaza. I'm not alone. The Secretary General of the United Nations has said precisely that. The Head of the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Assistance has said exactly that. The Head of the World Health Organization has said exactly that. The Head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Community has said exactly that. His Holiness the Pope has said exactly that. The Archbishop of Canterbury has said exactly that. So the burden is upon all of us, not to point fingers, not to say somebody else is going to be part of the solution, but to show that the law is not for the lawyers, but is for humanity. And in that quest, it is my prayer that voices of peace prevail. And the old adage that there could be no peace without justice is rendered vivid and actionable, that that requires your support and a belief in the value of every human being, regardless of race, religion, nationality, or gender. Thank you.
6: So that was uh, Mr. Karim Khan, who is the chief prosecutor at the uh, Inter- International Court of Justice. International uh, Criminal Court. Uh, International Criminal Court. As, as he mentioned, that this is not just for one side to to take up on. I think it's beyond that. This is not an isolated event, which you can have one person or one institution or one government look at it. This is something that affects the international community. Hmm. From the east to the west, north to the south, I think everybody's engulfed in this humanitarian crisis, in this, as you mentioned, some people call it genocide. Uh, Actually, officials have called it genocide Um, you hear the word apartheid regime and system over and over again Um, but how do we get there so voices for peace I think it starts with 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 our obligation as members of the human uh, of, uh, of the international community as members of the human family the human race to call out what needs to be called out but also not forget our role as Muslims, our role as people of faith to remember these victims, to remember these innocent lives in our prayers. And I think one of the very most powerful things that His Holiness has said probably in in the last couple of weeks is that a friend of mine actually told me about this. When, when in the past atrocities have happened against people from within our community, His Holiness said that you should... Fast once a week mm. you should have these two voluntary mm. prayers once a week but in this case it was different wasn't it yes so we're supposed to pray for them in every single prayer yeah one one prostration needs to be dedicated, dedicated to prayer. the people of Palestine yeah uh, or, or you know for innocent uh, victims of this conflict and that tells you about the 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 scale of things Mm. about the, the necessity and the importance and also at the same time about the kind of atrocities that are being committed that forget about everything we need to turn to god almighty we he is the only one and the people of palestine the people of gaza have shown it to the world with their example with their patience with their prayer with their belief in god almighty they have actively converted people to Islam. They have actively converted people, atheists. I've seen videos of atheists who have gone, bought a copy of the Quran, and started reading it hmm. based on what the reaction of the people in Gaza that they saw. Hmm. How powerful is that? Yeah, yeah
1: absolutely. So essentially, uh, you know, their lives um, will. Will never go in vain. No, uh, their no sacrifice doubt. Will, will I mean, never His
6: Holiness labeled them martyrs, right? No. These martyrs, and mm-hmm. we know from the Holy Quran, the God Almighty states that if you think of these people mm-hmm. to be dead, think again. They're not dead. They're alive in the mm-hmm. sight of God Almighty. They are alive. They're not dead.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, ab- why? How could we not pray? How could any uh, any person with any shred of humanity actually not pray for these poor poor palestinian women poor palestinian children yeah. who are dying day in day out for no fault of theirs you know just think about uh, again my daughter has not been well over the past one week she's she's 9 years old and she just had a flu uh, and um, he, and it worries us uh, to bits yeah uh, and I cannot even begin to imagine the pain, the parents who are, who have had to bury their, their their young ones, their children, their babies, uh, the newborns, uh, uh, who who actually had nothing to do with this conflict, who um, who are, who who don't know what Hamas is, you know, a, 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 you know, a baby. Yeah. Uh, you know just just imagine the the baby who is gasping for breath yeah. for an in, in in an incubator which doesn't work at Al hospital please tell me what his or her fault is
6: you we were speaking about child poverty in the first hour yeah the numbers that we see here at home they they should ring alarm bells and they do and while listening to the stats and the figures we felt the pain that a child has to go to school without breakfast yeah how horrible is that that we live in the sixth largest industrial nation where our children yeah. was at four uh, 22 million people altogether four million of them go hungry yeah and four million children go hungry yeah. how horrible is that but again I'm I'm making no comparison whatsoever but there's always a silver line. There's always a, a positive in everything. They have a roof over their head. They mm. have clothing. There's no comparison. There is no comparison, no doubt. But if if yeah. that makes you concerned, yeah. then multiply that mm. by a million, even yeah, or yeah. even more.
1: I, I, yeah, exactly. If that makes you something, if that makes uh, makes this a topic of a cause for you, yes. If that makes something, it that makes something, uh, if that Allows you or, or requires you to raise your voice. Then just imagine the the plight of these poor people in Palestine at the moment, who are unfortunately being reduced again by the Western media. And I'd say the Eastern media uh, and even the Muslim world. I'd say uh, into sound bites. Unfortunately, that's all they're being reduced through. They're just being reduced to a statistic. Fifteen thousand people died tomorrow. It'll be sixteen thousand. Two days ago, it was twelve thousand. You know, five thousand children. It just it doesn't mean anything to us anymore. Hmm. And, and and what uh, all in response to 1,200 people killed, both civilians, by the way, and um uh, and and members of IDF combined, yeah. 1,200 people died, not not just all civilians. And this
6: is always this 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 debate and this discussion about proportionality. I, I think it's a it's a silly discussion. If you as as a professional journalist, if you as someone who has the voice to make a change, to cause a change in the opinion of people, if you're talking, if you're hung up on that, then there's some something seriously, seriously wrong with your moral compass. Uh, yes, maybe in the first couple of days we could have had that discussion, but after six weeks, are you seriously telling me that you can with a straight face ask that question Hmm, I wonder what a proportionate response could be, yeah, I mean it's ridiculous
1: yeah, and and we've we've seen uh you know we saw it, and we' we see this plot uh you know the story playing again and again, we were told. Uh, these lies about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Nothing was found. We were told about these tunnels. You, you see something similar coming up, isn't e- exactly, it? Exactly. Is There's a theme. So, uh, you know, these, these tunnels, which are supposed to be under uh, under Shifa Hospital. Uh, lo and behold, we haven't found any yet. People who I was listening to an interview yesterday of a doctor who spent 16 years yeah. in that hospital. He said that I've been sleeping in that hospital and I have not found any Activity of anybody even remotely related to Hamas, and then you know there, there was this video shown of uh, some words written in Arabic, and uh, the representative IDF said, "Well, l- listen, th- you know this. Look at this. These are all words. These are all names of different people who have been a- a part of this attack." And what it turned out, it turned out that they were actually days of the week <laughs> in Arabic.
6: And this is this is what something I think people are not realizing in. I was also listening to a f- phone call conversation uh, of one of these American politicians who, very interestingly, said it's not about right and left anymore. Yeah. So this divide in our society is not about if you stand on the right, if mm-hmm. you stand on the left, mm-hmm. which which political stre- spectrum you stand on. No. This is This is a divide between young and old, between different generations. Yeah. And to tackle that is a whole different ballgame. It is much more complex because what legacy are you leaving behind for the generation that is going to take over this world? Are they going to be on your side and complete the narrative that you started, which cannot possibly happen because we have a lot more exposure we have a lot more information at the at the tip of our fingers i know if i want to find out what is happening in gaza right now i can do that but it's not like you know uh, operation desert storm it's not like after 9-11 where you were reliant on what cnn what bbc what sky news what al Jazeera whoever you want to call or yeah. you want to name what they have to report
1: and you had to pick sides on that one now correct so you could find out the truth if if you if you, you, could. If you wanted of to if you wanted to dig in and if you if you if you had a noble soul and you were looking for facts i think the point that you're trying to make is that it's not difficult to to dig up the facts yeah. in this in this day and age if you wanted to and if you wanted if you had an impartial heart
6: His Holiness said at one of the peace symposiums here in the United Kingdom held at the Bathefdu complex about the need for absolute justice, and he has been, again I reiterate, he has been saying it over and over and over again. Always remember that if we seek to pursue our own interests at all costs, the rights of others will be usurped, And this can only lead to conflict, wars and misery. We must all reflect and understand the precipice upon which we stand. So today we must always think of the consequences of our actions and the impact they will have on tomorrow. And he stated, my message to the world is to look at tomorrow and not just today. Let us leave behind a legacy of hope and opportunity for our children rather than burdening them with the horrific consequences of our sins. The Holy Qur'an also states, and again this is a verse we've mentioned over and over again. O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice, and be witness for Allah, even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred, whether he be rich or poor, Allah is more regardful of them both than you are. Therefore, follow not low desires, so that you may be able to act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is all aware, well aware of what you do. So you can hide, you can play those PR stunts and games all you want. But the truth will come out. If not in this world, then there will definitely be questioning. There will definitely be um,
1: an an answer that needs to be given in the hereafter. I just want to make one Quick point before we end the show, and, and that really is my tribute to all the, the Jewish colleagues and Jew, Jewish people who have actually come out yes. and, and raised their voice uh, voices against this atrocity that is being committed from all over the world. Now oh, they can be Ashkenazi, they can be from any other denomination, and we've seen really so many of them so they, they you know again this is not about a schism between Jews and Muslims no. it's not about being Christian this is just about being human this is uh, and really my heart goes out thanking all those individuals who've, who've come out on social media have come out in their hordes in um, uh, in all the streets marches, yeah. on the marches and have, have actually uh, have actually supported ceasefire. Have actually called for a withdrawal of Israeli forces from the occupied territories and the occupation because that is I think the ultimate solution to this problem. Again we must remember October 7th was the proximate cause The real cause of whatever we keep on seeing decades after decades in Palestine is the occupation of Palestine. And just like anybody else, Palestinians have a right to self-determination. They have have an inalienable right to live in freedom, just like any other human being. And that is the right that we support and that is the right that we've been talking about. Thank you very much for joining us today. This was our drive time show for this in the first hour we were talking about poverty and in the second hour we've talked about uh, the events here in the Middle East. We will be back with another with another show next week. Assalamu alaikum.